the Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 13th chapter. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go and tell that fox for me, listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, and the next day I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you, and I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We are going to take a look at the first reading for today, the Old Testament reading for today, which on the whole list of important stories of the Bible, and this is, this is just like way true of here, Lutheran, uh, this story is a big deal. It's way up there on the list. It's found in Genesis 15 which begins as we read, after these things. Now, of course, some of you know me well enough to know that we have to stop right there, right? Because, of course, these three easy-to-not-notice words, after these things, are really important words for the way in which they remind us immediately that the story we're about to read is is after some things, which means that it's part of a bigger story which is being told, which is particularly interesting in the case of Genesis 15, given the fact that this is close enough to the beginning of the whole Bible that it's actually doable and I think helpful for us to consider the fact that in the broadest sense, the these things which Genesis 15 is after is actually the whole first 14 chapters of the whole Bible, which lay the foundation for the whole story of the rest of the whole Bible, Old Testament and New. So what's the 14 chapter long foundational story that Genesis 15 begins by saying it is after? It's a story that goes like this. Genesis 1, God created the world, everything and everyone, and it was good. It was all good was really good. Genesis 2, God created everyone for the purpose of lovingly trusting and obeying God and lovingly caring for one another and lovingly caring for the earth for good. Genesis 3, people, Adam and Eve by name in Genesis, one and two, or two, but it is absolutely clear that in these earliest chapters that Adam and Eve are meant to represent all people. People, Genesis 3 says, created by God, don't want to trust God and obey God's desires, but would rather be God's and chase after their own desires. By the way, this part of the story isn't only found in Genesis. You can also read about it in the news pretty much every day, right? Genesis 3, part 2, even the earth 
feels the effects of humanity's desires to abandon the desires of God and the man and woman's sin affect their environment. Hmm. Seems like it's pretty easy to read stories like that, not just in the Bible, but in our news feeds too. Genesis 4, life minus God. Life minus the desires of God. Life plus sin doesn't equal life. It equals death. For Adam and Eve, and for others, and for the earth. It's a theme which Genesis 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, and our news feeds oftentimes expound upon. Life without obedience to God's desires turns out not to be true life at all. At this point in the big picture story, at the end of Genesis 11, there's this really big question right there on the table. That question being, what in the world is God going to do with the world that God created when the world apparently wants nothing to do with God? Genesis 12, a pivotal story in the big picture story. God singles out and speaks to somehow one person in the world, a man here called Abram, but later he'll be renamed Abraham. And what God says to him essentially is this, Abram, the world I created has turned its back on me, but I am not ready to turn my back on it. I want to have my world back, and I'm going to do that through you and through your descendants which births the biggest, biggest big picture story of the whole entire rest of the Bible after Genesis 12, that being the story of God reaching to get God's world back through the descendants of Abraham and his wife Sarah. And in the course of doing that, God will bless them. Bless them richly, bless them abundantly. But God says that God doesn't bless them just for the sake of them personally, but rather God will bless them, God says in Genesis 12, so that they can be a blessing to others. Oh my, there's another big, big, big picture theme in the Bible, a theme that prophets later on down the road would just have cows about when people kept on forgetting it, that being the big picture theme that those who are blessed by God are always, always, always equipped to be, called to be, expected to be blessings for God's sake to others. Now, from this very beginning of the story of Abraham and his descendants, there's one piece of tension that just keeps right on weaving its way through the early parts of the story. That tension sprouted from the fact that God says that God will bless and reach out to the world through Abram and Sarai's many descendants. But when God says that in Genesis 12, God, Abram's already an old man, and Sarai is already an older woman, and they don't have any descendants. They don't have any kids. And years continue to pass, and they move to the land that Abram felt called by God to, the land of Canaan, the land now called Israel, and they are blessed, and they do prosper there, at which point we arrive at Genesis 15, 1, and our text for today, which says, after these things, now you guys know all the things, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. 
Do not be afraid. It's something God says over and over again in Scripture. Another quick pause. At this point in the story, Abram has been seeking to follow God's leading in his life. Some of you have too. And when you do that, sometimes you come to moments on the journey when you wonder if you're actually setting out on the right path, or maybe you took a wrong turn, or maybe you're at a crossroads in the path, and you're not sure what to do. And then you really try hard to hear God's voice, to discern God's leading. Here's something true again and again. God's leading in those moments is again and again and again and again exactly not the path where fear seeks to lead you. Which means, I think, and I find this actually helpful, when you're seeking direction and you hear all kinds of voices and you don't know which one to listen to or hear, the leading, the direction, the voice of God, well, try listening for the voice that begins. Do not be afraid. See where it takes you. Okay, back to the text. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house, my slave, Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, You've given me no offspring, and so this slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, no one but your very own issue shall be your heir. Then the Lord brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Remember how I told you the tension that exists in this story in this larger context here. This is three chapters into the story, years down the road already. They were old before it even started. Here, Abram named it. He named it to God. He had a question. He gave it to God. He had some doubts, and he told them to God. He said, God, all these promises to me and my many descendants, how can I have many descendants when my wife and I are the age we are? We don't have any descendants. And what does God give Abram in answer to his question? Well, here in Genesis 15, anyway, what God gives him isn't a child to see, but a promise to trust. It was night. And God said, look at the stars, Abram. Too many to count, yes? So shall your descendants be. Which takes us to Genesis 15, 6. And if you know anything about Luther, you are not at all surprised when I tell you that he loved this verse. He said that it is, quote, one of the foremost verses in all of Scripture, unquote. Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Righteousness in the Bible refers to being the people we were created by God to be, which means, remember Genesis 2? Being the people we were created by God to be means living in the relationship with God which we were created for. Relationship which, Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 say, was destroyed by sin. But a relationship which is here declared righteously restored by what? Abram believed the Lord. 
and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15, verse 6 is the first time in Scripture that's, that Scripture says what Luther says is the soul of the Bible's good news, and that is that sinners are saved, made righteous, made right again in that broken relationship with God by faith in the promises of God. Do you want to be righteous? Not that yucky, religious, I'm better than other people, righteous. But living the life that you're by God meant to live, righteous. In the relationship you're meant to know, righteous. It's not apparently a matter of never having any questions, never having any doubts, never wondering exactly what in the world God is up to or wants you to do. No, if Father Abram is our example, then righteousness, living the life you're meant to live, being the you you're meant to be, is a matter of walking the path of life, not knowing every single thing that God knows, but trusting every single promise that God gives you to believe. Genesis 15, 6, a verse to highlight, to underline, to memorize, Luther says, as one of the best verses in the whole Bible. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. I bet we could memorize that real quick. Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. A little bit better. Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Back to Genesis 15, which ends with a really, for most of us, bizarre story, which in those days actually wasn't bizarre, but was instead a very common and solemn ritual. God told Abraham to go get a cow and a goat and a ram and a turtle dove and a pigeon and, the, and to kill them, and to then, and then cut the larger ones anyway in half with room to walk between the halves, and so Abraham did that. Like I said, weird story, bloody story. But Abraham would have known what was going on here, for what was going on here was a very solemn ritual called cutting a covenant. FYI. The phrase we still use today, cutting a deal, comes from this thing right here. A covenant is in some ways a deal or an agreement, but biblically it's better understood as a relationship that is entered into by promises that two parties make to each other. Marriage, in that sense, is a covenant relationship entered into when two people make the promises they make to each other. Spouses, of course, often give rings as a physical sign of their covenant promises. But Abraham, back in that day, did do this, people did this weird thing of cutting animals in half as a sign of their covenant promises. That was called cutting a covenant, and both parties in the promise would then walk between the, the, the cut-up halves of the dead animals as a way of adding to their promise this solemn vow. May the fate of these animals be my fate if I break my promise to you. Okay, I know, weird, bloody, but stay with me because it gets powerfully interesting. 
Abram gets the stuff ready for the whole cutting of the covenant thing. But then what? He goes to bed. And sleeping, he hears the voice of God repeating the promise of a relationship between them and the promise of descendants that Abram and Sarah will have and a land that Abram's descendants will have. And then, in, and this is apparently a dream, Abram sees a smoking pot and a flaming torch, fire and smoke and clouds, remember, in Scripture, are both symbols of the presence of God. Remember the transfiguration story a few weeks ago? He sees these things, a smoking pot and a flaming torch. Note to self, God is in the vicinity. And then he hears the voice of God saying, you will have descendants and they will have this land. And then Abram sees the smoke and the fire, the cloudy fire, God, pass between the cut up pieces of the animals. In other words, wait a minute, what? In other words, God says, may the fate of these animals be my fate if I break my promise. And Abram does what? Nothing. He's sleeping, remember? Note well. Covenants are usually relationships entered into by the promises of two parties to each other, but this covenant is relationship entered into by one party. God making a promise. There's a word, of course, for a one-sided promise that is pure gift to the receiver of the promise. The word is grace. God wants the sinners God created back again. And the way back, made clear even way back in Genesis 15, is by grace, through faith, God making the promise. God saying God will pay the price if the promise is broken. God asking sinners to believe the promise. Speaking of sinners and promises and who pays prices when promises are broken. Speaking of grace. In the covenant ceremony with Abram, God said that God would pay the price if God broke the promise. Amazing stuff. Amazing grace. But in the biggest picture story of all in the Bible, the story of God reaching to get the whole world back through the descendants of Abraham, grace will get even more amazing. For a descendant of Abraham, his great, 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 etc., great, great, etc., great grandson, God's great and only son, Jesus, would come, did come, to promise more than that he would pay the price if he broke his covenant relationship with us, Jesus would come. Jesus did come to promise that he would pay the price even if we were the ones who, sinning, broke from the holy relationship of our holy righteousness with our Creator. And he would do so not by shedding the blood of innocent animals on the ground, but by shedding his own holy and precious and innocent blood on a cross. Twelve hours or so before which, 
He took a cup of wine in his hand and said, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Amen.